Um, good to be with you guys. Out of breath from walking fast. Um, but uh, we're going to continue this morning to talk about the Bible and race. And so just to remind you of what we're doing and, and the why we're talking about this, um, there are some people that are saying, and I think they could be quite right, um, that this issue <clears throat> of the Bible and race and racism and systemic racism and social injustice may be one of the most critical issues facing the American church here in 2020, and especially how the American church responds to it. And I think there is validity to that statement. Um, because our witness, how we respond to this and think about it, will affect our witness drastically, I think, to the people of our own country, but also to the people of the nation. So we're going through this because we want to have God's heart um, for these issues that we're confronted with um, today. So the, the way I've organized this in my mind is we're looking at the main sections of the overarching storyline of scripture, and then we're looking at, well, what does God say in those major sections? And of course, we can't look at everything God has spoken in regards to those sections, but I'm trying to highlight, I think, things that are really important for us to see. Remember, that main storyline of the Bible, that, that story arc can be um, explained as creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Uh, last week, I think it was, I started talking about uh, redemption in regards to, and then I said under that major section of redemption, there's Israel, there's the prophets, there's Christ, and there's the church. Talked about Israel last Sunday. Today, I'm going to talk about the prophets and the Psalms. What do they have to say about, by the, you know, the race issues that we're faced with? So, um, let me pray. And we'll jump in and look at what those um, books have to say. Lord, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you care about this issue of justice more than we can, more than we do. Um, and probably more than we even understand. Because you are such a just God and a faithful God. And you always do what is right. And you show no partiality judge with fairness and equity, and we're so grateful that you're that kind of a God. It's terrifying in the same sense, though, um, when we know how we have lived and what often operates in our hearts. Um, and so it's terrifying until, Lord, we come to your grace and what you did in the person of Christ um, to pay for all the ways we have acted unjustly. And so we thank you for that forgiveness. Lord, I pray that uh, we would uh, walk as children of light so that we are able to proclaim who you are and what you are about to a watching world who desperately needs you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first of all, I want to mention Isaiah 2, 2 through 4 to you. Um, let me just read this passage to you. There is no overhead PowerPoint, um, so I apologize for that. You definitely want to have a Bible out because we're going to be going through a lot of passages. So if you have one on your phone or if you have a hard copy, definitely get it out or you'll not be able to make sense of what I'm saying. 
Isaiah 2, 2 through 4 says this. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. These verses speak of this future day when, you know, nations from everywhere are going to come and they are going to worship the Lord. Um, and the result of what will happen is there will be peace. That's what uh, the verses, you know, four through five say the result of these nations coming to worship God, the result and to learn his ways, the result is peace. And notice that there are, there's these swords that are turned into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Um, and what some commentators will tell you is that that is like a return to the goodness of what creation was meant to be in the garden. You know, we're kind of talking about gardening tools. Pretty cool. Isaiah 10, 1 through 4. So you have that to start out Isaiah. And by the way, Isaiah just continues to work on that theme of all nations coming to worship God in a future day. Then we have Isaiah 10, 1 through 4. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. Here, we have God saying, look, um, I care so much about justice that people who treat others unfairly, judgment is going to come to them. And especially, look at who God's, in particular, who he's concerned about. People who have no power. In that day, the, the widows didn't have any power nor did the poor. They had absolutely no power. And God especially is concerned about justice for these marginalized groups without power. You know, um, it's been well documented that for black people in our country, the whole of securing a home, being able to build wealth, there's a whole redlining thing that has taken place. That is messed up. And wrong. It was keeping people, uh, black people, off from home ownership. Um, God, I don't see God just calling us to be innocent bystanders with all, you know, things like that. He seems pretty uh, concerned about justice, and we shouldn't just turn a blind eye to it. That was a side note. Sorry, not part of my sermon, but it is, and I'll trust that the Lord wanted me to say that. Um, 
So, and then we have Isaiah 11, and it talks about this descendant of Jesse, which is a descendant of King David in, in Isaiah 11, 3 through 10. Will not, uh, so it's, it talks about this, this servant, this king, will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. What's the result of this righteous judge that is going to come, that is a descendant of David? It's a world of peace. Check out verse 6 through 9. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And of course, um, in this talks about the nations, verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, the nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. We know that this descendant of David is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and one day he is returning, and he is going to judge the world, and justice will be served fully and completely, and the result will be that nations will be rescued, they will worship him, and there will be peace as a result of his judgments. Important to our study is Isaiah 18, because what I've been trying to do through this series is talk about not just, you know, how does God view all races, but specifically how does God view black people, because that really has been you know, at the forefront of what we're going on, what's going on in our country. Isaiah 18 has Cush, the ruler of the Egyptians, because the Cushites ruled Egypt for a time. Um, remember, Cushites are black Africans. And they were getting together with Hezekiah, who I believe, uh, my memory is slipping, slipping, but I think he was in charge of Judah at the time, not Israel. Remember, Israel split into two kingdoms, northern and southern kingdom. I think it was the southern kingdom Judah Hezekiah was in charge of. But anyways, Cushite ruler Hezekiah, they're getting together with some other neighboring nations, and they're trying to rebel against Assyria, which is the world's superpower at that time. And in Isaiah 18, there's this rebuke. But it's not against Cush. If you're reading the NIV, it makes it seem like that because it's translated, whoa. That's the first word. But you have translations like the NRSV, the NASV, the ESV that all translate that word, whoa, as ah. And so uh, every commentator that I read said this is not a judgment against the Cushites. What God is doing in this passage through Isaiah is he's saying, look, I'm monitoring this whole situation. And when it comes time 
I will deliver Judah from the Syrians' hands. And when I do that, the Cushites are going to see it. And here's what the Cushites are going to do. In Isaiah 18, 7, In that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth of skin, and from a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, to Mount Zion. And so this passage is speaking of actually Cushites coming to worship the Lord, and it's speaking a judgment on Israel for trying to form alliances to overcome the Assyrians and not trusting in God. That's the issue at stake there. Um, if you go to Isaiah 19, you have God pronouncing a judgment on Egypt. I don't know if this was the Cush-led Egypt, because again, the Cushites only led Egypt for a short period of time. But in these verses, in Isaiah 19, 18 through 25, we see that these Egyptians will come to believe in the God of the Bible. Um, they will know the Lord in that day, verse 21 says. They will make sacrifice and offering. They will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, he will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord and he will be entreated by them and heal them. And then these verses go on to talk about the Assyrians and also Israel with Egypt all worshiping God. And remember, Egypt and the Assyrians were um, longtime enemies of Israel. It is quite remarkable. Um, if you go to the second half of Isaiah, what you see is this continued theme of equal salvation for all peoples and nations. Um, Isaiah 45, 14 says this, The labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and of the Sabians, men of stature shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you, they shall come over in chains, and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other. There is no other God. What these verses are saying is that you have these powerful nations, right, that have powerful resources. Um, Egypt was known for their ingenuity. Cush was known for their commerce. Sabia's men were known for their stature. And these verses speak of them laying outside those idols, coming over in chains because they have seen the beauty of the God of the universe in his people and they have been drawn to worship the Lord. Chains of the six commentaries I read, every one of them, I think except for one of them, said these chains were voluntary. These people, um, the, the, the Egyptians, the Sabians, they were coming over voluntarily to worship God and basically saying, we will do whatever so long as we can worship your Lord, you people of Israel. Isaiah 66, it ends um, with this chapter and in verses 18 through 23, something remarkable is stated in verse 21. Again, this is envisioning a future day when the nations of the earth come and worship the Lord. And 21 tells us something remarkable. It says, in some of those, and Gentiles, some of those 
Also, I will take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. This verse is telling us God is going to take from those Gentile peoples some that he will make worship leaders of his new covenant community of people. This is remarkable because even Israelites, many Israelites couldn't be a Levite or a priest. This is, talk about privilege. In fact, this is so remarkable that John Oswald, in his commentary, he says this. This thought is so shocking that it can only have been intentional. Not even every member of the house of Israel could be a priest, much less any Gentile. Nothing else could as effectively symbolize the breaking down of the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. If a Gentile can become a Levitical priest, a Gentile cannot be excluded from anything. Isaiah is here using language which, with which his hearers would be familiar to make a point that they could only have found shocking in the extreme. And that's Isaiah. Very briefly, let me just mention Psalms and Amos and um, Zephaniah, Jeremiah. Very quickly. Here we go. Amos talks about the Cushites. Um, God's care for the Cushites in Amos 9, 7. Um, talks about, you know, Israel was getting all puffed up that they were the chosen one of, uh, you know, chosen, chosen ones of God, which was true. But they, were, they forgot that they were chosen to be on mission for God, for the nations. And so they're all puffed up. And in Amos, it says in 9, 7, Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, the black Africans, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from Egypt, the Philistines from uh, Kaftor, and the Armeans from Armeans from Kerr? And so what God is saying is that, look, I've done special things for various nations. Why, Israel, do you think you are all of that, right? Amos uh, 9, 12 talks about um, he, that there are going to be nations, again, that come up and they end up worshiping. God And actually, James, he cites this in Acts 15, 16 through 17. He, he cites Amos 9, 11 through 12, understanding that Jesus' resurrection is going to be for Gentiles. Zephaniah, the prophet, guess what? His dad was a black African. And in uh, Zephaniah 2, 12, there is some judgment that is being put out there for the Cushites, the black Africans. But then you read in Zephaniah 3, 9 through 10, that the result of that is going to be, there's going to be worshipers from Cush that will be coming to worship God. And so even that judgment seems to be a redeeming judgment for the Cushites. And then there's Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he was thrown in a cistern because he was telling uh, King Zedekiah, that look, the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to overtake you and Jerusalem. And of course, King Zedekiah and his people didn't want to hear it. And so they threw him in a cistern. Guess who saved him out of a cistern? Abed-Melech. And who was he? A black African that had a high rank as a military officer, most likely in King Zedekiah's um, administration. And here's what God commanded Jeremiah to say to Abed-Melech, who rescued him from death in the cistern. Go and speak to Abed-Melech, the Ethiopian, another term for Cushite, black African, saying, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good, and they shall be performed in that day before you. But I will deliver you, speaking to a bed, in that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword. But your life shall be as a prize to you, because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. So I'll stop there, and I'll wrap this up with some application. But before I do that, I just want to say, like, we've journeyed through the Old Testament in a survey fashion, and of course there's so many things that I didn't say that could be said. But when I survey the Old Testament, it's clear, abundantly clear, that God is a God for all people, and it's also really clear that he used black Africans I mean, they're viewed throughout the Old Testament extremely favorably. Um, only one area where I saw judgment for the black Africans, but guess what? Israel experienced God's judgment. So did all the other nations. Everything else I read um, paints them in the best light possible. And so here's what I want to wrap up with. Conclusion. How, why... Does what the Old Testament, what, what, what does it matter for us today? Well, here's something that stood out to me. So when you read through the Old Testament, what you find is that when God's judgment comes, guess who it comes to first? His people. Come, it comes to his people. And guess what? We, like the Israelites, have a tendency to believe that sin is outside of us. It's those people over there who have the problem. I'm not a racist. They are. That's not an issue for me. What the prophets state very clearly that the issue often, most of the time, isn't out there, it's in here. And so the first step I think we need to take in regards to racism is we need to look inward. And here's what has happened in America. All of you, including me, we have grown up hearing messages from various people in our life over time that have unconsciously made their way into our hearts. We've picked it up just like we kind of pick up an accent. You know, we have this Ohio, at least other people tell us we have an accent, right, that we don't even know we have, right? And that proves the point, is we have... We have these thoughts and attitudes in our hearts that we pick up that we're unconscious about. And so, the first thing we need to do is look inward. And we need to ask God to reveal those um, erroneous ways, sinful ways in us. Uh, Mary was listening to a podcast on this issue of racism. And, and the podcast speaker gave some great questions. And I just want to share a couple with you. Here's the first one. What were the explicit explicit messages that you heard growing up about race from parents and grandparents? What were the explicit messages that you heard growing up about race from parents and grandparents? I'll tell you what, my grandpa was a racist. There's no doubt about it. Farmer in Louisville. And I heard all kinds of racist statements from my grandfather. I also heard racist statements as we watched basketball as a family um, growing up. 
all the time. What have you heard from your grandparents and parents? Not only what were the explicit messages, what were the implicit messages that they, you heard from them? And then you could go to, all right, what messages did you hear growing up from your community, your friends, your school, your church? We have a lot of Tussle people. What did you hear growing up about black people in Tussle? What did you hear? What about other, other people groups? Growing up in Maslin, if you grew up in Maslin, we have Maslin people. What did you hear growing up in Maslin? What were those explicit messages? And then you go to what were those implicit messages, messages that were inferred, right? You had to read between the lines, but everybody knew what you were saying. Um, were there any earthquake events that you experienced surrounding the race? That's a good question to ask. As you take time to look inward, um, if you do not find anything that is in you that has made you feel superior to other races of people, come tell me. I, I, I would love to meet you, and I know that as I look inward, I see it. See it. You know when I really started to realize this? Through my good buddy Trevor, who many of you know, who's a pastor in Montreal, Canada. I came to realize through having a relationship with him over the last, I don't know, 15 years, there's so many things that are, uh, that are cultural in America that I believe are the standard in our absolutes, and if anybody isn't meeting that or doing it that way, they're wrong. What are those things in your life where you just think the American way of life is, is just the superior way? And everybody else is wrong. And then the second step, and I'll close with this, is when you find things that are in there that aren't the way that God would want them to be based on our study of the Old Testament, the next step is repentance. <clears throat> we repent. And remember the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is it's oh, it's all about what I lose. When I do something wrong, it's self-centered. Godly sorrow is, man, all sin is against God. I sin against him. I've hurt other people. Um, I love God. I don't want to be that. God, I'm going to wash myself in your grace, and I'm going to expect your grace to transform me in this area. That's godly sorrow. And so I, that is the second step. And we'll talk about other steps in the future. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that your scripture, and we've just looked at the Old Testament, is abundantly clear that there is no race of people that is inherently superior or has more dignity or worth more than another. Lord, it's also abundantly clear that you really are concerned with social justice, and we should too. We should be concerned about it as well as your people especially those who are powerless. Um, Lord, um, your word is also clear, too, that sin is not just outside of us, it's inside of us. And although when we make a decision for you and we receive you as Lord and Savior by putting our faith in you, although we instantaneously are given a new identity and we are a new creation, 
change happens over a lifetime. And there's still those simple ways of thinking and behaving, often unconsciously, that are still left over from our old nature. Lord, I pray that you would uproot these simple ways of thinking about race and other people so that we see everyone the way you see them, so that we can love them fully as you would want them loved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.